Welcome to the Horror Lab, podcast critically exploring key moments in horror, past and present, recorded at Northumbria University. I'm Steve Jones. I'm Russ Hunter. And I'm Johnny Walker. Today in the lab, we'll be discussing James Wales' The Bright Frankenstein. We'll be speaking with Xavier Dana Reyes from Manchester Metropolitan University about the Gothic. We'll also be discussing some recent work I did on an Italian horror film called The Monster of Frankenstein. We'll also look at what the legacy of The Bride of Frankenstein is today. The Bride of Frankenstein follows on from James Wells' earlier 1931 film, Frankenstein. The film sees Baron Frankenstein blackmailed into creating a bride for his earlier monster, the titular Bride of Frankenstein. So it's recently been announced that Universal are rebooting their classic monsters series, Bride of Frankenstein. It's scheduled for release in 2019. And in the last episode, we were talking about Candyman, and there are some coincidental links between the two projects. Bernard Rose recently directed a version of Frankenstein starring Tony Todd, who also played the Candyman, but also the 2019 remake is scheduled to be directed by Bill Condon, who not only directed Gods and Monsters, which is a film about the last days of James Whale, but who also famously directed Candyman Farewell to the Flesh. What interests me about The Bride of Frankenstein is that it's the first horror sequel. What interests me about it as a sequel is you can see that Whale and presumably the studio two are trying to work out ways in which they can make this accessible to an audience who haven't seen Frankenstein, but also make that story flow for those who have seen the earlier film. There are a couple callbacks to the earlier film. So, for instance, the most famous line, of course, from Frankenstein is Colin Clive's... It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! In The Bride of Frankenstein, we get... Colin Clive on the phone when he's trying to establish whether Elizabeth is, is okay or not after she's been captured and Pretorius is trying to blackmail him by keeping his wife captive. Clive says she's alive when he speaks to Elizabeth. That is all now. But you heard her. Yes, she's alive. There's a kind of allusion and echo to the earlier film. The monster in The Bride of Frankenstein, for instance, saves a shepherdess when she falls into the water and panics when he appears. It's a direct contrast to what happens in Frankenstein itself when he innocently throws a little girl into the water whilst they're playing a game together and doesn't realise that she's going to drown. They're trying to do these things to, to make connections to the earlier film. Just to pick up on something that you've just said, Russ, about, about callbacks, the scenes immediately after the framing device at the beginning of the film rehash the, the closing moments of Wales' first uh, Frankenstein. This would seem to situate Bride of Frankenstein in relation to popular movie serials or indeed frankly popular radio serials of the period whereby you would have a you know a cliffhanger ending and one episode and then the next episode would begin with a rehashing of, of what happens before and of course you get that today in contemporary television as well so we're talking about Bride of Frankenstein as the first horror sequel but I also think it's important to note that it also belongs to a movie tradition even in this early period 1935. We know today that the creature's never really dead that they're going to come back again but at this point there's that how do we sell this to the audience they're trying to tread a really careful path of it not sounding too ridiculous but making it clear to the audience that it's okay within this filmic world we can bring this monster back. Both the creator and the creation are supposedly dead at the end of the first film and both of them are reborn and in fact when you were talking about 
the callbacks to he's alive millie comes in and she says oh, look, Millie, he's alive! about baron frankenstein and he's resurrected in the same way the monster is in the first film and that makes perfect sense within the context of the film in the sense that life and death are mutable throughout the franchise therefore it makes perfect sense that both the creation and the creator are dead and then come back to life when they are aware that victor frankenstein is alive his hand falls out of the shroud that's covering him because they think he's dead which is exactly what happens to the monster when they realise the monster's alive. His hand falls out and they, they realise there's a bit of movement. I mean, that has become a trope of horror cinema. And I'm thinking of, you know, the Friday the 13th films when Jason Voorhees, you know, we, we think he's dead and then at the beginning of the next film, oh, his hand falls out of the body bag and it indicates that he's still, well, alive. These are the things that start to establish horror iconography. Depending on when we believe the horror film begins and a lot of... Critics and academic commentators say, you know, it's with not just Frankenstein, but Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy. That's when we start to see the genesis and, and clear development of a horror genre. That actually things like, for example, Victor Frankenstein's Science Lab, that becomes the archetype for what the mad scientist's lab looks like. The tropes keep being reiterated, even in children's cartoons and so forth. One of the things that we haven't talked about, actually, is the bride herself. Yeah. Bride of Frankenstein is played by Elsa Lanchester, who also plays Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley at the start of the film. You know, the creator, literally, of Frankenstein. That sort of adds an interesting dynamic to the Christian themes that run through the film when you've actually got somebody who's a creator who's also female. And I suppose that adds to the, to the, the, to the film's interesting commentary on gender and sexuality. The most interesting aspect of that commentary is the fact that while the film is called Bride of Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein, the monster, is only in the film for three minutes. And the reason we haven't yet spoken about Elsa Lanchester is because she's got about five minutes total screen time. But again, that character has become iconic. If you go to any, any joke shop, any fancy dress shop, look for a Frankenstein outfit, you're going to get Boris Karloff. But you're also going to get Elsa Lanchester because that was such a striking image. While that image of the bride has become iconic, possibly most of the people who have gripped onto that image haven't seen the film. They've just seen the image. One thing I just wanted to quickly talk about too was the monster itself. We haven't really mentioned Karloff. After Frankenstein, Karloff really becomes a star and he's in his early 40s when he plays the monster in, in Frankenstein. And after this period, he starts to just be billed as Karloff. So he becomes arguably the first horror star in some ways. What's brilliant about the monster here is the monster is somehow inexpressive, but also very expressive. Jack Pierce, the head makeup artist for Universal, leaves enough capacity for Karloff to move his face that we get some sense of connection to him, that when he's confused, when he's upset, when he's excited, we can see it. It's easy to ignore the performance of someone who's playing a big lumbering person with various prosthetics stuck onto them. But I actually think it's a really good performance. Karloff's performance as the monster is so iconic. It became so cliched that when Hammer made Curse of Frankenstein in 1957, the guys at Hammer really wanted to distance themselves from that performance because it's stilted and because, you know, the cliche is that the monster has his arms out and is, is walking around very stiff. Whereas Christopher Lee's performance in The Curse of Frankenstein is very, very different. It's more erratic and scatty. He doesn't just walk, he runs. But then you get to the 1963 film, The Evil of Frankenstein, the Hammer film, where effectively they just redo Karloff's makeup. 
It's testament, really, to the longevity of that iconic image from the first Frankenstein movie. There's an amazing promotional still, which is literally just the monster's face, and you get it on lunchboxes now, you get it on T-shirts. But that is the image that we think of when we think about Frankenstein. You know, people rarely think of Colin Clive. They think of Boris Karloff. Karloff is much better in the first film than he is in Bride. His performance plummets as soon as he starts to speak, for me. I think he's a much more powerful actor and screen presence when he's not speaking. I think he was right to be reticent about speaking. Actually, I don't know whether some of that reticence comes across in his performance in Bride of Frankenstein. I think you're absolutely right. When he speaks, and particularly, for example, when he meets the, the blind gentleman in the forest and he starts smoking a cigar, it doesn't quite work. And actually, the question for me is, does it make him more human and therefore more horrifying as a, what is effectively a scientific experiment? Or actually is the monster more terrifying when he can't communicate and he's this sort of frustrated character and he's much more quote-unquote monstrous because he's, he's less human? This is early in horror cinema. We, we don't really know at this point what a movie monster is. Nowadays, you know, when we think of monsters, sometimes they talk, but oftentimes they don't because it adds a layer of the unknown. But I guess at this stage, 1935, maybe they were just saying, well, let's see what works. If the film was designed as a horror film, the horror doesn't necessarily have to come from the monster. I'm not necessarily sure that from Karloff's perspective, he was trying to be scary. I think he was trying to find the best way to work with the character or something, and the horror arises out of the idea of resurrecting someone from the dead, stitching dead parts together, and then a kind of existential crisis that follows from that. Not necessarily that he's a threat. I think he's an unintentional threat. There's a principle in environmentalism um, called the precautionary principle, which basically reads that you shouldn't do something if you can't predict the outcome of it. Frankenstein and Pretorius are scientists who have no one controlling. If you have unbridled scientific and inverted commas progress, what comes out of that and what comes out of it in this particular film is this creation this monster for me the most clever thing the film does is sets up what apparently seem to be dichotomous outcomes so you have life and death or creator and creation and just blurs them it sets them up in order to disturb them and i think it's the disturbance that's the interesting or even terrifying part of that is the fact that we can't tell what the outcome's going to be that comes across quite strongly when the monster visits the blind old man there is good, and there is bad. Good, bad. There is good, and there is bad. And all we've seen from the monster throughout is that he's struggling to work his way through that, and in some ways he's trying to be good consistently. He's trying to help people, but they're terrified of him. What I worry about is that we've set up another dichotomy where there's the monster and then there's the people who aren't monsters, whereas in the film, the real monsters throughout are the people is the people who generated the monster in the first instance is the people who don't listen or give the monster a chance to just chase it with pitchforks and end up causing disaster those are the real monsters within the piece for me yeah i mean absolutely arguably i think in any horror film that's about creation acts of creation as in as in this case of course the real monsters here are pretorius and frankenstein because these are the people that have played god so really what we're talking about is a set of images that have become iconographic over time. What we haven't yet spoken about is the settings themselves as being iconographic. And Bride of Frankenstein uses those settings, again, very cleverly. It juxtaposes, for instance, the elegance of Byron's living quarters at the beginning of the film to the castle that's in ruins or the hovel the blind man lives in. It juxtaposes the 
ornateness of some of those settings with the savagery of uh, the weather outside and the lightning that's necessary to bring the monsters back to life and so forth. The crudest, savage exhibition of nature at her worst without, and we three. We elegant three within. One of the key elements, of course, within the film and within films of this era are the castles and the living quarters more generally, and those have become broadly associated with films that are set in a particular period. That then translates into people's ideas about what these films are and the way they've been interpreted by critics and scholars, and here I'm thinking specifically about the Gothic. Well, in fact, we were all very interested in thinking about what Gothic means more broadly within academic and popular culture. So last week we caught up with Dr. Xavier Aldana Reyes, who's a senior lecturer in English literature and film and a founding member of the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies at Manchester Metropolitan University. Xavier's written numerous books, including most recently Spanish Gothic, National Identity, Collaboration and Cultural Adaptation. He's also written the book Horror Film and Effect, as well as Body Gothic, Corporeal Transgression in Contemporary Literature and Horror Film. In addition to this, he's edited um, Horror, A Literary History, and co-edited with Linny Blake, Digital Horror, Haunted Technologies, Network Panic, and the Found Footage Phenomenon. I chatted with Xavier about numerous things, but I started off by asking him, can the Gothic be easily defined? It's interesting because from the point of view of cinema, it seems to me that this is something that we can just work out. You look at something and you know that it's gothic. But when you actually get down to how people use that term, especially in academia, it's so ambiguous and it's just so lax. In a kind of interesting turn of events, the gothic, originally perhaps we could call it a subgenre of horror fiction more widely, has now taken over and it's kind of the catch-all term that captures things like supernatural cinema or, you know, monster cinema, horror, strands of sci-fi. It's interesting because it's definitely the case in the Anglo-American context, but not necessarily the case um, as widely in the continent where terms like the fantastic are perhaps still preferred. If you take the purely historicist approach, the Gothic doesn't really move forward from 1820 onwards, but it obviously does, you know, into Victorian Gothic and eventually into cinema. For me, I've been trying to think about what the Gothic might mean within the context of cinema. I still haven't really made up my mind, but I think the closest I can get to an answer is that for me, it's an aesthetic marker insofar as you can have Gothic horror, but you can also have Gothic melodrama. It strikes me that Gothic isn't technically a genre. Although it has certain settings and characters that recur, you wouldn't find it, for example, in Netflix as a genre category. Horror is a genre, one premised on emotions and not necessarily on settings, which I think is what complicates matters. So gothic horror for me would be a type of cinema that aims to be scary, but it uses a certain number of aesthetic clues that can be anything from setting, perhaps the most important one, to uh, time and specific characters. So gothic horror will tend to be the one that is set in the past. Normally an ambiguous version of the past, a fantasized one. So in the 18th, 19th century novel, that was the closest medieval past. Increasingly for us, it seems to be the Victorian period that we throw things back to. If you think about Crimson Peak or The Woman in Black recently, that seems to be our current gothic past. And I think for me, that's what distinguishes a film like Crimson Peak, which is an impeachably gothic from other ghost films like, say, for example, Paranormal Activity, which are set in the present. You make an interesting point, actually, about the way that Gothic has been, or rather can be used in relation to horror cinema. But don't you think it's the case that 
horror and gothic are oftentimes used interchangeably, as if they mean the same thing. Oh, absolutely. And as I say, I think it's quite interesting that the Gothic has begun to gradually sift through the popular imagination. I still think it's a big step forward that the the, uh, British Film Institute had a Gothic season in 2013-2014, because I would have thought the most obvious thing would have been to call it horror rather than Gothic. So I think that signals that the Gothic is somehow getting through. It is true that a lot of the time, especially, you know, in certain conferences, gothic and horror come to mean the same thing. But at the same time, I'm still with uh, Peter Hutchings on this, that horror is always the poor brother in, in this exchange. If something seems like it's intellectually valid, then it will be called gothic. And if it isn't, then it will be called horror, which still has that exploitational ring to it. I always do this with my MA students on the first day. I teach a post-millennial gothic unit and I normally ask them, do you think there are any differences between gothic and horror or do you use those terms interchangeably? And the um, response I tend to get is that for them, the gothic is more about subtlety, about occlusion, about hinting at things, about hauntings maybe, things that are kind of pervasive and atmospheric, whilst horror for them is more like, say for example, torture porn, explicit, more immediate and visceral type of cinematic experience. So, yes, I think they are used together, sometimes problematically, but I think the fact that that's happening signals that the Gothic is becoming less a kind of uh, architectural term, which it has been for quite a long time, and something that people are beginning to recognise. David Perry, in his famous book, uh, A Heritage of Horror, outlines what he calls the English Gothic cinema effectively using the word gothic in relation to films which, a lot of the time, are described as horror films. And I'm thinking specifically of a film like Hammer's The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957. The gothic, in a way, sets up um, a number of motifs and images that then horror cinema picks up and, and does things with. So by the time we get to a film like Curse of Frankenstein, is that a horror film? Is it a gothic horror film? Is it simply gothic? What's interesting about Perry's book is that whilst he tries to go back to a literary history, one that is very relevant because a lot of the films that we now call gothic are adaptations of Victorian gothic novels like Dracula, or earlier in that century, Frankenstein. I would say it's actually quite difficult to trace a pure line that would go from Victorian fin de siècle gothic to cinema. Because by the time we get to cinema, especially like the first few gothic films, which in my mind would be um, Melies' trick films, we've already got a very different type of gothic, one that is almost predominantly set in the present. So you've got ghostly visitations or furniture moving around or skeletons turning up. And yes, in some cases that has a medieval background background like the haunted castle but in a lot of them they are happening in the present and that carries through to a lot of the universal horror studio films so if you think about um, films like the wolfman they are very contemporary they're not happening in a medieval setting and then by the time we get to the 1940s and films like frankenstein meets the wolfman we end up with situations like the frankenstein the original film presumably set in the 18th century crossing paths with the wolfman presumably the 20th century so what we end up with is this netherworld that isn't quite present isn't quite past but finds a way of materializing in the buildings themselves. So when you're watching something like uh, Ghost of Frankenstein, it's not so much that the medieval past is there presentially, it's there in, in the settings themselves. The key thing there would be whether it's citation or gothic, whether it is going back to specific literary sources that it's trying to adapt, which makes it almost automatically gothic, but also a gothic that definitely looks back at a more barbaric past, whether it be the Victorian past or the medieval past. That, for me, would be the key 
different and it's an aesthetic one, which is why I, I'm thinking of Gothic cinema currently, uh, or the Gothic in Gothic cinema, as an aesthetic marker. You've written books either with Gothic or horror in the title, so why did you opt for horror in some instances and Gothic in others? The reason why I call the first book Body Gothic is because the Gothic is connected to a longer uh, literary tradition. It allows you to connect what you're doing with texts that go back two, three hundred years. Whilst horror, it seems to me, still contains that kind of exploitational aspect to it. If you look at what I cover in Body Gothic, parts of it are more obviously Gothic, parts of it are more obviously horrific, if we go by that distinction. For me, Gothic offered the capacity of containing uh, both terror and horror, the more subtle and the more visceral. But it could have been perfectly called body horror as well. Spanish Gothic was all about establishing a Gothic tradition in Spain that I think has been there from the 1780s onwards. It was Gothic because it was in dialogue with Gothic novels of the time. So Anne Radcliffe was widely translated into Spanish, and that was the inspiration for Spanish writers of the 1830s, for example. Um, So that's why I called it Spanish Gothic. Although as we move on to the 20th century and as we move on to contemporary writers, you can also talk about a specific horror tradition that's taking its cues from more contemporary writers like Stephen King, Clive Barker, and so on. Horror film and affect, I was very specifically concerned with genre. And because horror is a genre that's premised on emotions rather than on settings or characters, you know, you can effectively turn uh, any kind of scenario into a horror story so long as it's fearful. And I think people who watch horror will judge a film by whether it was scary or not. And because I was concerned with the effective side of it, the, the scary side, I went for horror. I am completely fascinated by the notion of genre, by where it ends and where the notion of mode begins. So I can see myself going down that route in the future. In fact, I am doing that now with Gothic cinema, teasing out what it actually means and why Gothic being a genre doesn't sound right from you know, a popular point of view. But that has been really useful for academics because it allows them to connect the material to certain theoretical notions, the uncanny, for example, or the sublime. The Gothic gradually becomes a box of tools through which to read text. So in that respect, even though I I come across as perhaps a bit of a purist in my understanding of the Gothic, I think insofar as it is creating, generating academic work, and insofar as it is offering people a springboard or a way of finding out what they want to say about the text, I'm all for uh, the uh, encroaching uh, nature of the Gothic upon academia. So, Xavi, over the last few years, the term Gothic has become very popular, certainly within academic circles. You've got the International Gothic Association, for instance. You've got a Gothic book series published by the University of Wales Press. And you've also got the Centre for Gothic Studies at Manchester Metropolitan, where you are. So we were wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit about that centre, um, your involvement in it, and also what, what its aims are. The Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies was founded in 2013. And although it seems very recent, in many ways, it was a bit of a culmination of a lot of work that was already going on at, at Manchester Met. So, for example, the work of Suze Losnick, who's been one of the founding figures of the Gothic in the UK, or Anna Powell, for example, who's now retired. These people were there when the International Gothic Association was founded in the early 1990s. And in many respects, this goes as far back as maybe 1980, the publication of um, David Punter's key book, The Literature of Terror, which in many ways set the ground for a more modern approach to the Gothic. 
His book kind of allowed people to look at more contemporary manifestations of the Gothic, and that climaxed in 2006 with Catherine Spooner's book, Contemporary Gothic, which, um, you know, in many ways was a blueprint for a lot of the work that's come out of that. People in my department started looking around and realizing that there were a lot of people who were writing in this area that we could um, generally call Gothic. So the idea was to kind of set up a center that would bring us together, that would allow us to research together, that would allow us to take that research out into the community. So in many respects, uh, things that were already happening, like the Gothic study days for A-level students that we were doing, or um, CPD courses that we were doing, it was a way of consolidating all of that and bringing it together. So we launched it in 2013. And we started also then what is now an annual event called the Gothic Manchester Festival. One of the events that we have on an annual basis is a one-day symposium where members of the public are invited. What is it really interesting for us, apart from you know, bringing our word out into the general public, is actually hearing how the general public are engaging with the Gothic. Because in many respects, that then gives us a platform through which to study the way in which the Gothic really is being used um, and understood. We've got a huge and amazing Goth community in Manchester that we're very indebted to, and um, we will continue with the Gothic Manchester Festival for as long as we can. So one of the things that Zavi points at during the interview is not only the connections between horror film and horror literature, but a question about when the gothic begins. And we've already alluded to Pride of Frankenstein being the first horror sequel, but that leads us to questions about when horror more generally begins as a genre. And I know, Russ, that you've been doing some research into the early silent period and in Italian horror, and you've been focusing on Frankenstein. One of the things that's always interested me is when things begin. There's been a convention of horror beginning with Frankenstein and Dracula in 1931. The reason people pick the early 30s is because there is an identifiable corpus of films that share similar characteristics to the point where sometime in the sort of early 1930s, people start to use the term horror film. There are a number of things that come before that that you could look at and say, doesn't that count as a horror film? And if we think about Frankenstein, for example, J.C.L. Dawley directs Frankenstein in 1910. Or we could go back further. We could even go back to 1896 and The Haunted Castle and Melier. Being someone who specialises in writing about Italian cinema, particularly Italian horror cinema, I was interested in when that process begins in Italy. For Italian horror cinema, people usually look at Riccardo Freda's film I Vampiri, made in 1956, as being the first Italian horror film. A couple of years ago, a couple people suggesting there were earlier horror films. So Gino Moliterno, for example suggests that a film called The Monster of Frankenstein from 1921 was the first Italian horror film. I became almost obsessed with trying to find out information about this lost film. Actually online there's now one image from the film which shows the the monster played by an actor called Umberto Guarcino. Then there are there are some posters that are circulating still. I went to a, an archive in, in Turin and what I came across was snatches of references to this film. And part of what interested me was can we reconstruct anything about this film to, this, to the point at which we could start to say there are generic markers that make this a horror film? When I went to the Italian archive, we have a poster from the mid to late 20s of this film still playing in a rural Italian cinema. We have evidence of it being played in Egypt. Actually, we do know a little bit more about this film than we thought we did. So for me, it was about trying to reconstruct all of those things and trying to work out what this film was. Was this a horror film? 
did you find any evidence of anyone referring to the film as a horror film? I and mean, do we need someone to refer to it as a horror film in order for it to count? Or is it something we just impose on it after the fact because it carries a certain number of tropes that we later come to call tropes of a horror film? There's a, a debate, particularly in academia, about whether you can only call something horror at the point at which everybody starts to use the term. Or can you retrospectively look back and say, well, actually, today, if this was released, we'd say it's a horror film. Who gets to decide what a horror film is? Does it have to be that we have it in writing somewhere, which means probably critics have mentioned it, and that's the important part? Capturing everyday speech is virtually impossible from, say, 1921, when this film was made. I don't think it matters if something is or isn't called a horror film. I think you can go back and say, these have the tropes that we might now associate with a horror film. So based on all this exciting primary archival research that you've done, what does all the evidence that you found ultimately mean in terms of horror film history? What it does perhaps is complicate the idea of, in any simple way, labelling something as horror. Because actually what I found with this film was, if we have access to this film, we'd watch it and say, that's a horror film. But there are a number of things that suggest otherwise too. So the, the lead actor, Luciano Albertini, was a former circus acrobat his trick apparently was from a standing start to jump over six chairs in a row he became a film star in a period in the late teens in italy where you had a lot of muscle men films and he had been in a number of films that made use of the fact that he was extremely athletic but also was very muscular as well he plays frankenstein the only review that we can find for the film which is an italian review suggests that there's actually a wrestling match between the monster and, and baron frankenstein so the filmmakers are making use of Albertini's star persona. That suggests to me that it's about making Frankenstein an action film more than it is about making it a horror film. But at the same time, the look of the monster, the fact that the monster is killing people in the film, and the fact it's called The Monster of Frankenstein, we can guess on weight of evidence that now we would at least see this as a horror-tinged film. So today, then, we've been talking about issues such as where does horror begin? And we've recognised that Bride of Frankenstein is a film which is often discussed in terms of being the first horror sequel. But it's also a film which has had impact on the filmic landscape, and today it's still referenced within popular culture. And actually one of the things I noticed when we were re-watching the film was how many contemporary films riff on or draw directly from the content of Bride of Frankenstein in quite explicit ways. At the beginning of Halloween 5, The Revenge uh, of Michael Myers when the monster is presumed to be dead, and again in a serialised fashion, it's revealed that actually he survived. The way it looked on screen was almost identical in my memory of how it happens within the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein, for instance. I also thought that when Pretorius turns up, Minnie is terrified of his presence and he's got this sort of Quakerish look. It reminded me of Kane turning up on the doorstep of the Freelings house in Poltergeist 2. Horror in the 1980s seems to be obsessed with uh, themes of regeneration. When we think about the, the 1980s, and we talked about this a little bit last time, is that it's an era of the sequel, you know, and I suppose Bride of Frankenstein did initiate that. But when we were re-watching Bride of Frankenstein, you know, it got me thinking about films like Reanimator, which of course is based on a, an H.P. Lovecraft short story, but the filmic sequel to Reanimator is called Bride of Reanimator, and it involves Herbert West, the, the scientist, creating a woman. By the same token, and the Friday the 13th sequel, certainly by the time you get to the, to, to the mid-1980s, and Jason Voorhees, the killer, is effectively 
a Frankenstein monster in insofar as that he's dead and he's being brought back to life. Oftentimes in those films, he's brought back to life by electricity, just like Frankenstein's monster is. And there's a famous sequence at the beginning of Friday the 13th Part 6 where two characters go to Jason Voorhees' grave, they dig him up, and just to make sure that he's dead, (laughs) they stick a metal pole in him, and it's raining, and it's very, very gothic, and then lightning strikes, hits the metal pole, and rejuvenates Jason Voorhees back from the, the grave. And that's an explicit allusion to what was initiated by James Whale in the 1930s. And there are also films like Frank Henenlotter's Frank and Hooker. There's uh, Bride of Chucky from 1998. There are loads of examples. In and of itself, the monster itself has lasted. Nobody tries to look like Christopher Lee as Frankenstein, for example, because the iconic image of what Frankenstein is is the the flat head and the, the little conductor bolts in the neck. And that lumbering monster is a thing that stayed with us. If you think about the success of Dracula, Frankenstein, and then the sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein, we get a lot of sequels to Frankenstein. We always get one that becomes a franchise in a way. And so obviously the, the franchise continues now insofar as The Bride of Frankenstein, as we've already mentioned, is being rebooted as part of Universal's dark universe. And it'll also be interesting to see what kind of role The Bride plays in the remake, especially in the contemporary feminist or post-feminist era. If you have any comments or questions about this episode, then please contact us on Twitter at the underscore horror lab. In response to last week's episode, Adam at Only the Bassist asks whether VOD will eventually be subject to age classification as seen across cinematic and video distribution. There have been various rumblings within legislative contexts about enforcing the kinds of age restrictions that Adam refers to. ATVOD, for instance, was founded with that remit broadly in mind. And there were some discussions about imposing age restrictions on, for instance, music videos on YouTube. But the problem is just the sheer quantity of hours of footage uploaded every minute to something like YouTube. It's utterly unenforceable to impose age restrictions on that kind of video streaming. My guess would be is that you'll get a thrust if there's a moral panic. If something happens based upon some in inverted commas, compelling reason, then you'll get campaigners exerting pressure on the BBFC. And this is one of the drivers for um, the move towards classifying online streamed hardcore pornography or restricting access to it by um, via age verification. Classification organisations like the BBFC, for instance, it's in their interest to constantly expand their role. So I wonder whether agencies are going to want to expand their role for industrial reasons. This is exactly what's happening to the BBFC at the moment. The BBFC are being tasked with enforcing age restriction for online streaming of pornography, which surprises me given the amount of material they're being asked to classify already and how small the organisation is. There are very few classifiers working within the BBFC. It's about practically how it works, isn't it? Because as an organisation, it's whether you feel that means you can argue for more staff and you can expand, or whether it's just going to put unnecessary workload in you and it's unrealistic. It really does show you that the classification procedures that we are so used to in the UK, at least, really are redundant. Netflix has age restrictions in place, but ultimately people are accessing films based on genre more so than the age group that these films are pitched towards. Thanks for the question, Adam. Should anyone else want to tweet us about anything, you can do so at the underscore horror lab.